Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back while we squeeze amazing and bizarre science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we'll feature more blasts from Diffusion's past. Walking robots, Isaac Newton, Edward Teller and Fugu. But first up, here's the news with Therese Chen. the stories of soldiers who only let others pass once a correct password was spoken? Well, it appears that birds have also adopted this method as a means to tell their young apart from cuckoo birds. Cuckoo birds are parasitic. They lay their eggs in a host's nest and upon hatching, the chicks eject the other eggs and monopolize the foster parents. What results from this is a co-evolutionary arms race where the parasitic species develop strategies to mimic the host, whilst the host species develop their own recognition patterns. Co-author Professor Sonia Kleindorfer of Flinders University in Adelaide says that they focus on a dynamics of an acoustical arms race between the superb fairy wren and its most common brood parasite, the Horsefield's bronze cuckoo bird, when they were doing research on anti-predator vocalizations. In their study, which has been published in the current biology journal, they discovered that females regularly call to their unhatched eggs once the embryo is well developed. A comparison of these recordings to the chicks begging calls revealed that they both shared a similar element. The scientists performed cross-fostering trials to determine whether this was an innate or learned trait, and found the highest similarity between foster mother and nestling calls, intermediate similarity with genetic mothers, and least similarity with parasitic horsefields brown cuckoo chicks, indicating that the chicks indeed learned the password during incubation. When they followed this with playback trials, they found that the fairy wren mothers behaviorally discriminated between begging calls. Parents and others attending their nestlings will only feed them if their begging calls contain the learned password, said Sonia. A prior study in 2003 also found in instances where only the cuckoo chick was present, 40% of the fairy wren parents abandoned the nest entirely. It is speculated that the wrens are able to use acoustics as a method to distinguish between their young due to differences in incubation period. The mother wrens produce the core from the 10th day of incubation till the first egg hatches. So in the case of the fairy wren hatchling, having an incubation period of 15 days, the chicks are exposed to the mother's core for 5 days. In contrast, the cuckoo chicks hatch after 12 days. As a consequence, the time of exposure to the call is cut short, 
and the ability to mimic odor and the call is reduced. Whilst prior studies have shown evidence of acoustic recognition in fairy wrens, this study is one of the first which has found evidence of the learning being prenatal. Co-author Mark Holber, an animal behaviorist at the City University of New York, has said that the future research could focus on how these chicks learn these calls. In the future, we'd like to do some brain imaging on the embryos using non-invasive functional MRIs, he has said. We want to see how these embryos are listening, practicing and learning these relevant vocalizations. Potentially, the cuckoo chicks will also eventually circumvent this tactic by evolving their sensory and cognitive development such that they too will be able to learn the password. Two thousand and three was a good year for diffusion, where Chris Stewart scored an interview with Sir Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton, thank you for joining us. And so you should. Uh, right. Uh, amongst your impressive resume of discoveries are calculus, the binomial theorem, and the laws of mechanical motion. But isn't it true that you discovered the universal law of gravitation by an apple falling on your head? I refute that accusation with all my being. Time and time again I hear this inane little story of how I, Isaac Newton, discovered gravity by being clocked on the head by an apple. I mean, honestly, I'm the greatest scientific genius for a millennia. Don't you think I could have found it out Anyway, it's a baseless myth. Besides, it was an orange. You, you were raised to the House of Lords and served there for a number of years representing the University of Cambridge. But your only recorded contribution to any debate in all those years was, and I quote, could someone open that window? It was a hot day. Things were pretty stuffy already and the Earl of Sandwich opened his lunchbox. All I'm going to say is that his sandwich idea is not going to catch on if it consists of raw onion and blue vein cheese. Anyway, look, you were also head of the Royal Mint for many years when you served with distinction. You invented the gold standard and it was said that you ruled with a bit of an iron fist. Quite a number of forges were beheaded on your request. Well, I can tell you this. They won't be pinching from the Royal Mint again. And I'm sure their heads will grow back with time. You're, you're most famous for your work in physics and mathematics, but few people know you were obsessed with alchemy. In fact, you have written some 1.3 million words on the subject, more than twice the number you've written on physics. What do you have to say about all of those years wasted on alchemy? Look, buddy, discovering fundamental laws about the nature of the universe doesn't come cheap. And if there's a rumour going round that you can turn lead into gold, well, gee, think of it. You're the most famous scientist in Europe. You'd have to have a crack at it. But you're already a fairly wealthy man. How many rich people do you know totally unconcerned with money? Good point. What about your famous altercation with Leibniz over the discovery of calculus? Look, I'm a bit sensitive about that one. It's really just a bit of Anglo-Frenchy bargy-bargy. Though I thought at first... He said you didn't. Did. Didn't. Did too. Your famous third law of motion states that 
for every action, there's an equal but opposite reaction. How do you respond to the fact that some people have taken this philosophy out of the physical context and applied it generally in sociology, theology, even psychology? Well, they may have abused the concept, but I won't say those people are entirely misguided. For example, if you keep asking me irritating questions, that's action. Then my reaction is to reach across this table and... Professor Newton, thanks for your time. More from the amazing Chris Stewart from 2003 shortly. But first, Tim Baines reported on the 2003 Nobel Prize in Medicine and its connection to molecular machines and poison fish. What do kidney function, molecular machines and the poisonous fugu fish have in common? They're all in the next minute of Science on Discovery. Every cell in your body is enveloped in an incredibly thin but strong membrane. And embedded in this membrane is all manner of tiny molecular machines. And they're really quite big. Well, big for a molecule anyway. Thousands of times bigger than a water molecule. Most of these machines are proteins, which might do jobs such as grabbing nutrients and carrying them through the membrane into the cell. One of these molecular machines is a pump. Instead of pumping water, it pumps potassium across the membrane one atom at a time. This might sound like it's kind of slow, but these potassium salt pumps are actually very important, and they're everywhere, especially in nerves. And they're also vital for healthy working kidneys. Your kidneys are the organs responsible for maintaining your body's salt and water balance. The 2003 Nobel Chemistry Prize went to two Americans, Agre and McKinnon, for their work in discovering the chemical structure of potassium pumps and how they work. And all this is very interesting, but where does the poisonous fish fit in, I hear you ask, and I'm glad you did. It turns out that another molecule called tetrodotoxin specifically blocks these salt-pumping proteins. And it is exactly this toxin that's found in the Japanese fugu fish. The fugu is considered an exotic dish, but before you eat it, it has to be carefully prepared by first removing the poisonous parts. Baines giving us the connection between molecular machinery, poison fish, and your kidneys. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Into Sydney on 2SER. And over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Chris Stewart reports on the life and 2003 death of the inventor of the hydrogen bomb, Edward Teller. Several weeks ago I spoke with Dr John Forge, a researcher at Griffith University who thinks about the morality of scientific research for military applications. One of Dr Forge's conclusions about this difficult subject is that even research designed for defensive strategies may be morally suspect. 
since research done in the name of defence can always benefit an offensive strategy, a scientist can't ever really say that their war research is purely defensive. I wonder then what Dr Forge would say about the life and work of Edward Teller, the famous, some would say infamous physicist, who died recently on September the 9th. Edward Teller worked on the Manhattan Project that developed the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He went on to lead the development of the even more powerful hydrogen bomb and strongly advocated the escalation of nuclear stockpiling during the Cold War. Teller advised US presidents on the importance of war research and the Star Wars missile defense system. He was a brilliant and controversial scientist, lauded by friends as a true patriot and reviled by politically opposed colleagues. Edward Teller was born in Budapest in 1908, but left there to study for his PhD in physics in Germany, ironically because Teller feared for the career prospects of a Jewish scientist in Budapest. When Hitler came to power in Germany and Jewish science of any kind was denounced, he escaped to London and eventually to the United States. Teller's experience of Hitler's regime led him to join the Manhattan Project, the unprecedented scientific endeavour to develop an atomic bomb before the Nazis. The Manhattan Project aimed to create a weapon that used the energy released when an atom of uranium is split in two, a process known as fission. After the atom is split, the two pieces have less mass than the original uranium atom, and that small amount of missing mass is converted to a huge amount of energy. But while physicists had shown with devastating effect the energy released in a fission weapon, Teller realised that an even greater explosion would result from combining atoms together, a fusion bomb. When two hydrogen atoms are squeezed together hard enough, they fuse to make a helium atom. The helium atom has less mass than the two hydrogen atoms. And again, the missing mass is released as stupendous quantities of energy. This is exactly the nuclear reaction that occurs in the sun. A hydrogen bomb would be, in effect, recreating the sun's furnace right here on Earth. The physics of the H-bomb are as fascinating as they are horrifying. To coerce those two hydrogen atoms to fuse together, they must be squeezed with incredible pressure. Teller and his colleagues realised that the only way they could achieve that pressure was to use a conventional atom bomb as a trigger. The first bomb would compress the hydrogen fuel, causing the fusion reaction to kick in, resulting in an even greater explosion. A modern H-bomb is thousands of times more destructive than the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But Teller understood that a fusion-based hydrogen bomb in the hands of an enemy would be a much greater threat than a conventional atom bomb. After the war ended, when most of the Manhattan Project scientists went back to their pre-war research, Teller continued with his work on the H-bomb. His influence on government military spending became much stronger when the first Soviet atom bomb was tested in 1949. If they could build a fission bomb, then they might build a fusion bomb. In the 1950s, the Cold War had begun and Teller entered a new era of controversy. He testified against his old colleague and leader of the Manhattan Project, Robert Oppenheimer, during the McCarthy trials. Oppenheimer was known for his left leanings, and Teller's testimony led to Oppenheimer's security clearance being revoked. After that, many scientists and former friends refused to even shake Teller by the hand.
With the build-up of nuclear weapons by the USA and the Soviets in the Cold War, Teller joined the lobby for a missile defence shield, Ronald Reagan's beloved Star Wars project, a plan that he defended strongly even after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Let it be easy, too easy perhaps, to condemn Edward Teller for his apparent warmongerish advocacy of nuclear weapons research. Yet here was a passionate, articulate scientist who had witnessed firsthand the oppression and brutality of the German regime, something most of his American colleagues had not. He was a man who believed in the use of nuclear weapons not for offence, but for deterrence, never to be used but to be kept as a threat. He rarely expressed regret for any of his work. When he did, it was for the use of atomic weapons against Japan. He believed the threat of use would have been sufficient to force Japan to surrender. Now, none of this justifies his position. It simply underlines the inherent difficulty of judging a moral position for weapons research. Edward Teller was a man of scientific vision, an educator, a lover of physics. He was also a passionate nuclear weapons advocate, the father of the H-bomb. In his death, the scientific and political communities can once again consider the many conflicting issues surrounding the morality of war research. And that was Chris Stewart reporting on the life and death of Edward Teller on 9th September 2003. Earlier this year, Julianne Popple and I spoke with Arwen Cross about military walking robots. Do you remember those Imperial walkers from Star Wars? Those big war machines that walked around? But they were driven by stormtroopers, or at the end by Chewbacca. But Boston Dynamics, a robotics company, is working on a similar concept for a real-world robot, and this one won't need someone inside to drive it. A couple of years ago, they came up with a prototype called Big Dog, and this prototype of a four-legged robot that can walk through all terrain has now developed into a new machine known as the LS3. This robot is designed so that it will be able to act as an assistant to armed forces. So the idea is that it can act as a modern-day pack horse by following soldiers through a rough terrain and carrying their gear. Funnily enough, it's rather noisier than a horse. It sounds a bit like a, a motorbike with its engine, and it looks somewhat spookier because it's this walking metal machine. But I guess the interesting part from a science point of view is how this LS3 walker from Boston Dynamics, how it actually gets around. So this robot has four legs and, uh, and they move around using hydraulics. And this is all controlled by a computer system inside its body. And this, this robot can, can sort of run following a human leader. And if it falls over, it can get itself back up. So the, the details of some of the, the ways that it can sense its environment to be able to do these things, it has a, a gyroscope so it can tell, you know, whether it's leaning to one side. It has a GPS system so it knows where it is. It has something called LIDAR, which is where you, like with radar, you, you throw a sound against an object. With LIDAR, you throw light against an object to see how far away it is. So if you've got LIDAR, then you won't bump into trees. And this computer also has both visible and infrared light cameras that give it stereo vision. So the, uh, the LS3 can walk around quite well through rough terrain. And there are videos you can see 
of it walking through bush over rocks through through snow it's it's quite uh, an amazing robot but i guess the fear that such things might be used as a an unmanned assistant in war and and whether these could be used not just to support soldiers but to attack without the presence of soldiers is something that's worth all of us having in mind as a an ethical consideration even when we're looking at very cool robotics I might sound like someone who has the technological knowledge of an Ewok, but I've never heard of LiDAR, and it sounds like a really exciting concept to me. Do you know when LiDAR was invented? Anyone um, know? No idea, no, I'm sorry. we have to find out. <laughs> I think it's, it, it's very interesting that we've got now walking robots, and that this is the main use for walking robots at the moment, is to assist soldiers. And it's interesting that these are terrains where horses might not do so well, and it might be difficult to bring pack animals along. And just how far they've got where they can now get them to follow without having to check them all the time, that they're not going to go running into things, and that they're, they're still not that smart, but they're smart enough that they can follow basic directions and go where they need to go and do what they need to do. I think they're also working on, um, on verbal commands that, that the robot can follow, and the main problem that they've had with that, funnily enough, is that... Um, they're listening all the time, even when you aren't talking to them. And if you accidentally use the key word that tells it it needs to, you know, lie down when you're having a conversation and you want it to keep walking, then uh, then it it can have troubles. But uh, they're sort of working on helping uh, a mechanical brain to sort of understand when when the command is directed at it and when it's part of a conversation. Possibly they need to give them names. And it should only answer when the command name is brought. I mean, these are, these are basic things for any voice recognition system, like on your phone, for example. Um, certainly on an Android phone, you can give it a wake-up name. You don't have to go with the one that's built into the phone. Oh. You can choose to say, computer, or, or whatever it takes. And perhaps your tone of voice might be the thing that tells it that it's a command rather than just a, a word. And certainly, uh, even in science fiction, the uh, Star Trek characters have to tell the computer, computer, do this. So maybe it's, uh, it's not such a disadvantage for us to, to be doing that too. And when you talk to your dog and you, you tell it to go outside or stop eating the pet rabbit or whatever, you, you use its name. Yes, yes. So I think there's, there's conventions that we just have to apply to inanimate objects that are now animate. One of the uh, other cool robotics projects I've seen, which I'll have to find out more about for another program, was uh, was robots designed not for war but for interacting with people, and specifically some of them are designed to interact with children and, and play with them and sort of give you sort of a gaming experience that is both on the screen and with, a, with an interacting robot in the room with you. And could you use this as a way of playing a game with your grandparents over the phone who don't live near you to, to both be playing with this, this robot from, from two ends. But uh, that might be for another time. Very interesting stuff. I know that robots and personal interactions are a big thing in Japan where they're concerned about having robot carers for the elderly because they don't think they're going to have enough young people and to look after so many elderly people with their ageing population. And so you need robots that uh, people can relate to, as well as robots that do the job. Yeah, and I think that the the different purposes of robots from sort of 
war machine pack horses to carers for the elderly to children's toys to houses that control their climate and throw out your rotting tomatoes at the bottom of the fridge. All of these purposes share some some technologies, but I guess thinking about the design and what we want it to do rather than just about the technology is, is fascinating. Yes, it is. And uh, don't mention the drones. And make sure we get the programming right and don't get them mixed up. Yes. There's probably a movie in that. <laughs> Guinea pigs used to be the size of rhinos Raccoons were the size and ferocity of bears Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that It's a fact, yeah, deal with that The moon is moving away from the earth by 40 centimetres a year And when it's gone we are all well and truly buggered it's a fact, so deal with that It's a fact, so deal with that Blue whales are bloody massive Their tongues weigh as much as an elephant Its heart is the size of a car And some of its blood vessels are so wide That you could swim down them Oh, it's a fact, so you deal with that It's a fact, so deal with that Your average pillow of about six years old made up from one-tenth of skin, living mites, dead mites, and mite dung. Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, you deal with that. It's a fact, deal with that. Ducks, quacks don't echo. Fact. It's a fact. Deal With That was written and performed by Sam Greenwood. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Send your congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Or you can find us on the 2SER iPhone app which is free. Contributing to this program, Julianne Popple, Arwen Cross, Therese Chen, and from 2003, Tim Baines and Chris Stewart. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL... The first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Yeah. <laughs>